Well, good morning, Christ Hold Fast people. I am Pastor Eric Sorensen coming to you from New York City, where I am the church planter and pastor of Epiphany Lutheran Church. Happy post-Thanksgiving uh, day to you, or as it's known in America, Black Friday. If you're shopping, then you're not seeing me right now. If you're waiting in a line, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're seeing me right now. Uh, but we are not going to do anything different today. We are going to give thanks for God's Word today, and we are going to give thanks specifically for God's Word found in the book of Ruth, because that is where we're camping over the next uh, number of weeks. And so uh, last week in our introduction to the story, uh, we saw that this book really focuses on uh, really two characters uh, that will be fleshed out for the rest of the time, and then we'll be introduced to more, uh, primarily Naomi. Uh, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the story deals with them enduring um, really a severe trial, a severe series of trials, but specifically the trial that's been mentioned thus far is widowhood. And we talked a bit last week about how difficult it is, or it was, especially back in that day, for one to be widowed, for a woman to be widowed, and how uh, hopeless and dependent she would be in that kind of situation. On top of that, uh, it, they're in a foreign land, uh, Moab, at least a foreign land to Naomi, so they don't have the roots, they don't have the family to sort of take care of her. And so they're really in kind of a hopeless spot, and uh, we pick up the story in verse 6. It reads like this, Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her, husband, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, uh, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Well, as is so often the case when we go through really trying times, uh, Naomi's first sort of instinct going through this trial is to be alone. Uh, she urges her daughters, uh, daughters-in-law, to go their their own way, to go to their own home, because if they stay with her, uh, their life will have no foreseeable chance of improving. Uh, they will be foreigners in Bethlehem, and they will have no means to take care of themselves. Uh, and you got to remember, at that time in Israel, the law was if a husband died without leaving an heir, uh, a son, uh, then the brother or closest relative would provide the heir through sleeping with the widow. That was really the way it was done. 
this wasn't a matter of modern uh, sort of westernized romantic love that, that wasn't a factor here this was purely a means by which these women could be taken care of could be provided for in that time and the name of the family would therefore be preserved uh, in Naomi's mind, there are no more of those kinds of people around. There are no, quote, kinsmen redeemers. That is the phrase, that is the title used. Or relatives to take care of them. Well, at least back in Moab, these girls, Ruth and Orpah, can go back to their families and, and have some kind of life, maybe even get married again. Uh, so eventually this is enough to prompt Orpah, not Oprah, again, uh, to leave. But not Ruth. Now, more on the reasons why for that next week, but all we know at this point is that Ruth has decided to stay with Naomi. And it's in the midst of this that we see God's sort of hidden providence and the problems that come with it. If you look closely at the text of Ruth from verses 1 through 14, you can see a number of uh, things that sort of Naomi believes God is doing. She absolutely believes God is still in charge. She just doesn't like the way he's doing it. Uh, she sees him as powerful and ultimately behind everything that goes on. Um, he brings the famine, she says in verse 1. He gives the bread, verse 6. Uh, he can deal kindly. Covenant love is the word there. And he can grant rest to Naomi's daughter-in-laws. And yet in Naomi's view, this same same hand is going out against her. It's God, God who's doing this to her. And when she eventually arrives in Bethlehem, uh, she tells her old friends and countrymen to no longer refer to her as Naomi, which meant pleasant or sweet, uh, and instead to refer to her as Mara, which meant bitter. And the reason she says this is because, quote, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So you see who, in her mind, is getting the blame. I mean, she absolutely believes in God. She absolutely sees God as sovereign and providential. She just really doesn't like it right now. And so she's asking the question, why? Why call me Naomi when God has testified against me? I have found that there are two kinds of why questions. Uh, the first is more abstract such as you know why did God create mosquitoes uh, why does God allow this that and the other thing I mean but essentially that why question that kind of why question is academic in nature uh, when when I was at seminary since I had a much larger library to choose from uh, one of my main issues that I looked to get more understanding on was the quote-unquote problem of evil I I researched it just on my own as much as I could I did papers on it uh, because like everyone else it puzzles me and I want to know why an all-powerful all-good God would allow so much evil in the world uh, different different theories are postulated to try and quote justify God that's actually what the the study of this is called it's called theodicy which literally means to justify God uh, as if we can do such a thing <laughs> um, for allowing evil in the world and in all my reading on the subject over the last number of years with all sorts of uh, theologians opinions on the matter uh, brilliant brilliant minds the one thing I can tell you for certain is that no one has a direct answer to the question why they may know what God can do through evil, 
I mean, we do know that according to scripture. We may know how good can come out of evil, but we don't know why evil. We may know that God hates evil and is punishing on the cross of Jesus, but why he allowed it in his creation in the first place, we just don't know. So we may struggle with these questions on this, on this kind of abstract level, on this academic level, and it may plague us a little bit. But then there's the second why question. And the second why question, this comes down from deep in our gut. This comes from personal experience that cries out for an explanation. This is not, hmm, why? This is, why? This is anger and frustration and deep pain. And yet most times, we are not given an explanation in Scripture for that question. As a matter of fact, sometimes, most of the time, we're giving silence from God. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis writes of his feelings towards God for a time after his wife, Joy, died. He writes this, quote, one of the great Christians of the 20th century, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then with praise, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. I believe this is where Naomi is at. I don't think her why question is coming from some abstract sort of academic tone. This is coming from real pain. She is bitter and she has decided that it must be because God has something against her personally. He has, as she says it, quote, testified against her. As if she's in a court of law and God is saying, you are guilty. I choose to punish you. You ever found yourself asking those kinds of questions? The why question with a bit of an accusatory tone toward God? I think we're prone to thinking that we're not allowed to ask those questions. Especially in modern uh, Western Christianity, we're almost sort of taught that it's a lack of faith if we dare ask God the question why he would allow such a thing to happen. And even, it would be even more blasphemous to say, and it's your fault, God, or something like that. And so we're prone to just sort of avoiding the question. But here's the reality. Read the Psalms and you will find all over the place people asking these questions. Psalm 74 begins with the words, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? As if it's really going to be forever, but this is raw emotion. Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 88 is frankly the most depressing psalm in the whole Psalter, in the whole book. It begins with the word, Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. You would expect to hear from that point on good things, but the psalm ends with these words. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? 
Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. End of psalm. End of psalm. That's where Naomi is at. This may be where some of you are at this morning. You've tried to put the smiley face on, and you've tried to pretend like everything was just fine, especially yesterday in front of the family at Thanksgiving dinner. But deep down in your gut, you're asking why, and you feel like God has stuck you in a bit, and he's not listening to you, and he doesn't care about you, and at any moment, all hope is probably going to be lost. Can I just encourage you today as we as we close... This is the moment when you feel like all hope is lost. That when you feel like God is not hearing you, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. Cry out to him now. Even if you're not sure what to say, cry out to him, seek his face, even when it appears he's turned his face against you and isn't answering. He is there. And you know what? Bring to him exactly how you feel. If you feel like he's abandoning you, then ask him that. Why have you abandoned me? If you feel like he's punishing you, ask him that. Why are you punishing me? Why? Why? Ask him. Bring it to him in prayer. He is there, and his word declares he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews tells us he is disciplining you as his children right now. That's a fact. He is not far off, but rather this cross that you bear is exactly what he told us would happen. You see, the psalmist in his lament, so often like us, is forgetting the times when God does answer his prayers. Naomi is forgetting about the fact that God promises he has a plan for his glory to be worked out in her life. And we do too. We forget that God has shown his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whatever hardship we go through, it can't possibly be because he doesn't love us. Christ proves that. It can't be because he doesn't care for us, because he doesn't see us as his son or daughter, who he deeply, deeply, deeply loves. Christ proves that. Look to the cross when all hope seems lost to remember what God's word says about you. We question so often saying, why do bad things happen to good people? But as John Gerstner, the old uh, Reformed theologian said, the real question in a world full of sin is why do good things happen to bad people? We have to remember that the only good person who has had bad things happen to him was Jesus Christ, and it happened so that he could bring you and I to a place with no more suffering and no more tears and no more pain. So remember, as you walk through this life of thorns and valleys and crosses, as Job did, that the same God who gives is the same God who takes away and say in the final analysis, blessed be the name of the Lord. As a matter of fact, Naomi doesn't know it, but God is already beginning to do something, and he's going to end Naomi's troubles, even in this chapter, through, of all people, her pagan daughter-in-law, Ruth. That's next week. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving day, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and a wonderful week next week. We'll see you next Friday. God bless.